saw that you'd tweeted something, an article about demons and the occult and leaving the occult. Yes, I came across an article called On Leaving the Occult. The article was written by a guy called Rod Dreher, who's an Orthodox Christian. And I've kept my eye on the Orthodox Christian growing popularity over the last few years. There seems to be a pipeline from Jordan Peterson to Jonathan Pajot, and then a lot of Westerners reevaluating their prior relationship to Christianity and understanding it in a new way that is, in some senses, immune to the standard Enlightenment criticism of Christianity, based mainly on a symbolic worldview. And one thing I've noticed is that there is a growing number of Orthodox Christians who take the idea of demons literally as beings that actually exist, which is an interesting development. (laughs) In this country, the Church of England, I don't know if you're aware of this, is in a catastrophic state. It's losing parishioners, members of the church, at an alarming rate, year on year. Whereas those traditions that are more traditionally oriented, that are more concerned with theology than mm-hmm. they are with politics, they've been growing year on year. So churches like Orthodox Christian churches are seeing their numbers swell. My impression of the Church of England has always been that they pride themselves on that. They pride themselves on being inclusive, they pride themselves on what they offer being something very fluid, very open, that is all things to all people. They go out of their way to do that. And it sounds like what you're talking about in terms of orthodox Christianity is something different from that. What what does that embrace, would you say, when you say orthodox Christianity? Is that like Greek orthodox, Russian orthodox, or evangelicals, does it include that? It includes a lot of churches, just other than the Church of England. But the main the main difference is taking the idea the, the, <laughs> taking the idea of God incarnating as a human being seriously. So people are looking for theology, they're looking for cosmology, they're looking for some way of relating to the world that's profound and authentic. Yeah. And they don't want to go to church for a lecture. So one of the transitions that happened in the church was that the the father or the priest never used to face the congregation. They used to face the altar. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in in traditional mass, that's what would happen. The people would go there for the transubstantiation of the wine and the wafer into Mm -hmm. the blood and the body of Christ. And you would go for that communion. And then at a a certain point in time, a few centuries ago, the, uh, the priest started to turn around and then address the congregation. And then slowly over time, it's become some kind of performance art. So you need to lecture people, or you need to put on some kind of performance, and that's why you get that cringy Christian music. That's a really powerful shift, isn't it, thinking about that? So originally you would have gone in there to see something happening, to participate in that to some extent. Participation in a ritual. Yeah. That's what you went there for, and what what you were communing with, represented by that ritual, was bringing something down from heaven, you could put it that way, bringing it into this world and then participating in that nature that's Mm. been brought down. So saying yes to an inheritance Mm. and it would orient the entire community and that's what you went there for. So people are looking for that and this is one of the things that Jonathan Pajot really articulates very well when it comes to looking at Christianity and even just the way the ancients thought through this symbolic lens. So Mm -hmm. you can see this hierarchical structure 
So people are looking for that, and they're not really looking for a political or even really a moral lecture. Given that civil society provides that political lecturing 24-7 now, doesn't it? And you say the ancients viewing things through a symbolic lens, but it sounds like there's also something going on there, which is a shift towards people actually taking seriously the idea of God incarnating as a human being. So something literal... If you're a good esotericist, then this will be old news. But that distinction between symbolism and literalism doesn't actually exist in reality. The, si the symbol is the thing symbolised. As in the transubstantiation. Yes, if it's symbolised, then it's real, if that makes sense. Yeah. A symbol isn't a referent for something else. The something else that we're thinking of is merely a lower-order expression for a reality that the symbol expresses that you could argue is more real than the example. So this is what people are actually reaching out for then, isn't it? Connection with something. Connection, actual connection with something through ritual, through participation. Yeah, and I think a big part of that is orientation. A lot of people do actually feel lost, right? We can have this idea that we're okay on our own individually and that we can make our way in the world based on our own choices and our own decisions and we're fine doing that. But those people who are okay doing that precisely the ones that end up discovering an orientation even if it's idiosyncratic that nevertheless will have some similarities with a universal structure found in other traditional expressions does that make sense what i'm saying so what i'm thinking about dunk is when we did the baptist head stuff right back in 2000 and was it five 2006 we started something like that you could argue that we were doing things on our own and we were sharing experiences weren't we and we were finding our way and for sure there was no cultural institutional support for what it is that we were doing in fact it was contrary to most of the cultural expressions of even esotericism yeah that we could find and a big part of that was us being confident enough to take up that adventure knowing that we would find our way and be okay with failure and addressing where we've gone wrong and learning from mistakes always with that idea of discovering what is this that we're encountering. And necessarily from that, you can describe a landscape and compare it to traditions that talk about that landscape and see that it's expressed in different ways, in different traditions. But nevertheless, you're orientating yourself, aren't you, in something that can't be separated from reality itself. And a tradition or a religious tradition purports to provide that already doesn't it so it's not the case is it that everyone needs to reinvent the wheel as in every single person should be rediscovering what's already been discovered it's possible isn't it for you to report back and then and thereby allow someone to participate in that adventure that you've already undertaken but in a way that's more efficient yeah, yeah. and deeper and richer and so that they can then add to the exploration, the prior exploration, such that they're indebted to what you did beforehand and they wouldn't be where they're at if it wasn't for the work that you'd done. But they get to add to it. Yeah. And that's, that is what a tradition is. That is what a tradition is, isn't it? Yeah. So n nobody needs to reinvent the wheel, as you were saying, but there is something that needs to be arrived at, that needs to be understood. Because I was thinking, what we get presented with in our culture is this idea that there are lots of different views and none is more valid or more important than another standard postmodernish shtick so in that sense everything's symbolic there isn't anything else 
to be found. And thinking back to what we did, that had to be overcome, didn't it? When you said about us not being able to find any expressions of esotericism that were helpful at the time, that was basically what was being expressed. This idea that everything's symbolic, there's no truth, it's all relative. One symbol's as good as another symbol, there's nothing literal, there's nothing beyond that. Yeah. But you can see the outcome from postmodernism has been a disaster. Yeah. And it's left people to fend for themselves in a way where our institutions have provided a disservice in that regard because most people struggle to know when they're making an error or not, to even recognise what failure looks like and then to adjust their course as a result of that. Yeah. I think it's an... Go on. Yeah. Because one of the things that gives postmodernism away, and I notice this more and more these days, is whenever someone's making that sort of argument, they always have to begin with dismissing the idea of truth, of any absolute truth. How long's postmodernism been with us now? 30 years, 40 years, longer? And yet it always has to begin with this kind of exorcism of truth doesn't it? Mm. Why would that be the case if what it was saying was true? Presumably you'd just be able to take it as read. But all postmodernist arguments, you see them do this. They have to make this opening gesture of dismissing truth. It's to convince you into the position, isn't it? To take you away from the immediacy of your own experience. Most people don't care about truth. I want to tell you a story to illustrate this. Go on. (laughs) Right. My wife's cousin, who she grew up with, Uh She, with her, along with her boyfriend, went to Australia, I think to live for a short while. Anyway, she went to a party and took LSD with right. her boyfriend. Later, her boyfriend would die from a drug overdose. But anyway, they took LSD, and she ended up deciding that running, in, just running off in a certain direction, was a good idea. Right. That there was something exhilarating about doing that while she's off her face on this LSD. So she just started running, and she just started running out into the outback. She went missing for three days. Search teams were sent out to try and find her. In the national news, they thought that she'd been eaten by crocodiles, but she turned up three days later, they found her. Now, the first thing she did, after she'd been recovered and recuperated, the first thing she did was she made a beeline for the first religious institution she could find. On instinct... She came across a Jehovah's Witness. Is it called the Kingdom's Hall? Yeah. Yeah, that's the first thing she came across. She went straight in and became a Jehovah's Witness on the spot. Oh, dear. You say, oh, dear. She needed something to orientate her in her life. She just needed to be told what was right and what was wrong and how to live and be safe in that framework, regardless of the theology. I can't talk to the degree of faith that she has, but since then, her life's been good. So she lives in nice places around the world. She's got work that she enjoys doing. She's been married and so on. Her life changed. Prior to that, she was with people who were self-destructive and so on. Now, I think a lot of people are like that. Yeah. Did she stay in the witnesses out of interest? Yeah, yeah. She hasn't left. I don't think she'll ever leave. Big part of it is that there's a community. And while she's embedded in that community, she won't be taking LSD and running off into the outback. Or dating people who are drug addicts who will then eventually end up overdosing. I think deep down, people don't really care about truth in the way that we think we're supposed to. I think for her, she didn't know where she might be going wrong, so she needed some something to be embedded within yeah. that will help her orientate herself so that she can live a, a life where she's not going to come to harm as a result of giving in to her 
chaotic impulses. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how else to put it. I think you take some drugs and that's going to blow you open, isn't it? You're going to feel things that you might not have felt otherwise. You're going to perceive them in a way that you might not have perceived them in otherwise. And there's that impulse to run. You described it to just head <laughs> up in a particular direction. And that's a very understandable impulse to have, isn't it? And I imagine all of us feel that at some point, to some degree or another. But, it, but here's the thing, so, here's the thing, but mm. here's the thing, right? I don't want to... Sometimes people take LSD and they talk about profound experiences and so on. Yeah. The way she describes it, she took the LSD, it felt good running. It was as base as that. It just felt good running. So she just started running and didn't think about where she was running to. But I guess that's a nice symbolic demonstration of the behaviour that she was indulging at the time. Yeah. It felt good to do it, so she just went off and she didn't even know which direction she was going in. But what intrigues me about that is that sensation that she had, that it feels good running. And it feels good running, presumably, because we're moving. We're, We're putting some distance between ourselves and something else. We're we're heading somewhere. Normally there are checks. <laughs> there are things that might come to mind that that would enable us to process that feeling and not literally indulge it. Of course she's under the influence of LSD. But I think what that points to maybe is how that was lacking in her case and maybe culturally as yeah. well. That kind of reckless behaviour that she indulged in is precisely something that our culture would encourage. You'd actually be encouraged, wouldn't you, to take drugs, be hedonistic, be adventurous. And who's to say that you shouldn't express yourself in that way? Yeah. Anything else sounds like inhibition or oppression, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, back to this article. Now, it's funny that in this article, the account that this lady gives begins in this way. She says, One of the problems when you leave the occult is people wanting to hear the spooky, salacious stuff. No one, as the psalm says, cares for your soul. Now, she's talking there about Christians, isn't she? They should listen to some podcasts. (laughs) Right. It's interesting that she would recognise that in the responses that she gets from her Christian community. Right. But the same thing would apply to occultism, wouldn't it? To occultists. In fact, in this episode, are we going to talk about spooky, salacious stuff? Probably. I I hope so. It makes the best material, doesn't it? (laughs) Don't you think that's interesting, though? Yeah. She goes on in her account to describe how she had a bad childhood, bad experiences with the church. She wasn't brought up Orthodox. She was raised Southern Baptist. And she says, I was deeply traumatised, broken, overweight, 17-year-old with no future, who didn't know where her next meal was coming from and had just lost the last semi-stable person in her life. Of course, I was vulnerable to the occult. The idea of magic and spells, of gods small enough to bargain with, or the power of the mind gave me hope in a hopeless time. I spent almost two decades in occultism, in different flavours and with varying levels of commitment. I found the more deeply active and committed I was, the more depressed I was. How familiar is that to you, given your sampling of the occultists that you've met over the course of your practice, Dunk? It sounds very familiar to me. Yeah. Even within my own reasons for practising yeah. magic. Yeah, yeah. This line, the idea of God's small enough to bargain with, And that's there. That's something that's on offer in the occult, isn't it? You can even make your own little gods, servitors and so on. But again, what's interesting about that is if you look at Christianity, and I know that's a broad brush, but generally speaking, how many Christians have you seen attempt to bargain with God? Lots. Most of them? 
Yeah, I remember a former girlfriend, some members of her family were evangelicals and they would yeah. pray to God to get us parking space. Yeah, yeah. How I didn't end up in a terrifying cult is beyond me, is what she says. Maybe she did and she doesn't know she's in it. She writes a lot about oh, demons yeah. in that article. In her list of recommendations, if I'm remembering it right, one of the yeah. the recommendations to Christians is that they take the possibility of the existence of demons seriously. That constant bargaining that constant being drawn into to something against your will really does smack for me of that kind of more demonic end of magic goetia and so on yeah she goes on to say i wanted to be loved and to belong so desperately i would join groups that taught things i didn't believe built on lies in confusion because people were nice to me mm. looking back that these people inevitably hurt me should have been no surprise Ironically, these communities were obsessed with sex. There was this idea that sex abuse wasn't a thing in pagan and occult circles because they were more enlightened. But in truth, if you objected to sexual abuse or harassment, you were merely labelled uptight. I thought I was sexually enlightened until my poor decisions put me in a vulnerable position and I was raped. I did everything from lighting candles and saying affirmations to using Victorian rituals to summon demons. I was part of a witchcraft group that hid part of its teachings until you officially became a member. And there was the hope that once you gain that knowledge, things might make sense. I was actually traumatised when my initiation involved people pushing knife points into my chest and then my blood was drawn without my consent. You're intentionally disoriented prior. Mm -hmm. For the group leader to hold on to, to use against me, should I break the oaths of secrecy? Now, she wonders if it was her poor decisions that led to her being raped. Sounds to me like she was in an abusive group. What all this is reminding me of is what we talked about in the episode to do with the nameless God, where I talked about some of the things that I saw at the conference that I went to, where there is this parody of initiation, which is trauma for your own good. Yeah. And I'm not sure if this is an idea that many people are familiar with, but just as we have genuine initiation, which is where you have a moment of seeing through a falsehood in such a way that you realise a truth it was always the case, but it had seemed absent prior to that moment. But it's defined by an encounter with a mystery. And this can be awe-inspiring. It can be destabilizing in a very particular technical sense. But it's always defined by a degree of liberation from an injustice that you believed yourself subject to. And you're joining something that many people have belonged to before, like an inheritance that comes through a lineage part of a tradition and it's something that's living and alive and it enriches your life doesn't it right that's what genuine initiation is like yeah but just as there's genuine initiation there's the shadow of it that moves in a different direction mm. false initiation and just as we can go through these stages of initiation moving in a certain direction which would be correctly described as deification which we'll come back to in a moment because that has some relevance to orthodoxy being so popular but there is a lineage moving in the opposite direction. If you have a traumatic experience where you undergo something possibly through being fooled into it, so it's like you've said yes to it, but you didn't really know what you were saying yes to, and you have this traumatic experience, usually presented as a means for destroying barriers or limitations, therefore being a parody of liberation, going through that traumatic experience then sets you up for further initiation in that direction. 
Just as we can say that true initiation leads to a liberation from a limiting idea that you have of yourself. False initiation moves in the opposite direction. You draw a conclusion based on impressions that are false and you become imprisoned in a drama that you weren't subject to prior to that initiation. Yeah. That can then set you up for the right person to come along, the right malevolent person to come along to then take you to the next step through another experience that structurally, symbolically speaking, has the elements of initiation. So just as a direction you might go in that leads to wisdom, yeah, freedom, happiness, joy, love, all of these things, there's a movement in the opposite direction. Yeah. Especially if I can fool you into doing something you wouldn't normally do, yeah. that you'd find morally repugnant, if I can fool you into doing that, and then that truth is revealed to you, you discover who and what I am really and what my motivations are, you end up with betrayal trauma. And that characterizes that false initiatory moment. Yeah. And then there'll be a further contraction from that, yeah? Away from what it is that you've done, away from the direction of where truth lies. Yeah. Until the right moment comes through that cultivation of that contraction to another false initiatory moment. And it moves by degrees in that way until you find yourself a lost soul. Yeah. I think there's a few things to to draw out there. First of all, it sounds like the true initiation in this case for this person was entering the Orthodox Church. That seemed to fit the criteria of what you were describing as initiation. And then that casts a really sorry light on occultism as it's presented here, which was a false initiation. Certainly where she talks about the trauma as initiation, trauma for your own good, ritually enacted, socially supported in that group. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that comes up again and again is presumably she consented to this at the time. And Mm. just because someone consents to something doesn't mean it's right. I think that was one of the things that you came up against based on your descriptions of what you saw in Berlin. Yeah. Just because people consent to something, it doesn't mean that it's okay for you to then do to them what they've consented to. And that's what seems to have been missing from this occult scene. And then maybe we get an idea of when you were talking about contraction, the sort of contraction that happens. So somebody consents to something and they have an awful experience, they start to feel that must be what they want because they've consented to it. Their idea of themselves is being forced onto them by somebody. I consented to this, so therefore I invited this. This must be what I want. This must be who I am. Yes, because the alternative is too much to look at, isn't it? Yeah. That someone's evil, that somebody's abusing you, that somebody's intentionally being maleficent towards you. Yeah, because it's not just like discovering your spouse has been cheating on you for 10 years. And that can be traumatic enough because you don't know who you are. You don't know your orientation in the world anymore. Like the person you you trusted the most, it turns out that you were a a poor judge when it came to something as intimate and as fundamental as that. Mm -hmm. But it's not just as bad as that. It's as if your spouse convinced you to do things you found morally repugnant as well as then cheating on you, betraying you. So not only can you not trust yourself and not only is there nothing for you to rely on, you can't rely on other people, you can't rely on your own judgments, you don't know what from down, that's what that experience has just demonstrated to you. Not only that though, you were convinced to do things that you wouldn't normally have done and that's the hallmark of trauma as initiation. And then it 
curiously, it's always tied up with this notion of that humiliation and the immoral nature of the acts that you've performed being held over you as blackmail. If you turn away from this path, if you turn away from what it is that you've signed up to, if you break your oaths, so to speak, there will be repercussions. It's not as if this spirit moving through these false traditions doesn't know what evil is or malevolence. It knows exactly what it is. Yeah. It knows that you know exactly what it is, regardless of what you've signed up to th through, through naivety and ignorance or combined with being vulnerable and being taken advantage of. Everyone involved knows, don't they? Yeah. What's good and what's bad. Yeah. And that's weaponized against you and it builds a prison. It's a prison that you can't get out of. So coming back to the episode that we did on the Nameless God, it brought up this question of satanic panic. Around the same time as we did that episode, there was the Balenciaga scandal. Yeah. And a lot of occultists online were concerned about a satanic panic. Like what happened, was it in the 80s, in the 90s? Something like that. Yeah, early 90s, wasn't it? Because you can look at occultists of various different stripes, even satanists. They're explicit Satanists. And you can say, based on appearances, it looks like they worship the devil or some kind of evil spirit or something like that. But if you speak to them, they'll say, actually, we don't. Actually, we're atheists. Or actually, it's just personal development. That's what we're interested in. Putting the individual first instead of some corrupt institution of the Roman Catholic Church or something like that. And you can even look at occultists, can't you, who do magical rituals, working with whatever entity of whatever stripe, who, when you speak to them, if you just scratch the surface you discover they don't really believe that any of these things exist. Not in any literal sense, not in any traditional sense, let's put it that way. The thing that I saw at the conference that I went to is that there were these characteristics, you could see them everywhere. There was, it was trauma for your own good, initiatory experiences that were traumatic for your own good, and it was leading in a certain direction. It was there in the aesthetic, none of it was hidden. And I could ask that question about the people there, were they genuinely worshipping what I'm calling the nameless god? Did they have an altar with a statue of the deity on there? Mm. They were worshipping it? Probably not. And you would say, you'd say, no, probably not. Probably not. But at the same time, they opened the conference with a ritual where they invoked the nameless god. So which one is it? And I think the answer is both. I think it takes that form. Yeah. I think it takes that form. The way the I would look at that mm. is... Like you said, there are some people who practice occultism, but they don't have any any belief in the existence of these entities in a literal sense. And yeah. I think that's correct. <laughs> I think these entities don't exist in the sense of having any form. If you're saying that for something to exist, it has a form, that's what existence means. Okay. You will never see these entities in a way that you'll be able to touch them you'll never detect them on any electronic equipment bear with me <laughs> are you sure about this Dan? <laughs> okay okay let's consider for a moment that, that these entities do exist yeah say the nameless god does exist we're saying it exists yeah, yeah? okay absolutely yeah so that means that he lives somewhere that means ah, so that means yeah. that yeah if he exists it's true mm that he has either eaten a cheese sandwich or not eaten a cheese sandwich at some point in his existence. Do you know what I mean? It's absurd to attribute existence in the conventional sense to these entities. But what the way I would look at it is, 
regardless of the material existence of these things, we have a relationship to them. And that's real. And that's there. See, the problem I have with that is that I can see that you're addressing the willful ignorance, naivety that you find in postmodernism and just the contemporary orientation that people have when it comes to these entities. And it's there in the literature, isn't it? It's what most of the literature is about. Whether or not a psychological model describes them better, whether or not it's merely symbolic and doesn't doesn't necessarily imply some kind of lived reality mm. to these entities in the way that they're normally described. And I can see that you're addressing that and saying, well, let's look at it in terms of relationship because it can be difficult, can't it, to put your finger on the entity in question as mm. an objective monad, like a human being. Yeah, yeah. But it's something like so. It's something like something's only real if it if there's a if it has a physical body and is singular and lives a life like a person or something or an animal. Yeah, but I would say yeah. something exists if it is a physical monad, but it doesn't mean to say if it hasn't got that that it's not real. Relationships are real. They're real. But have you ever seen a relationship? Have you ever detected one on electronic equipment? Nevertheless, relationships are real. So but here's the problem, here's the problem that I see coming out of that. Yeah. Someone can hear that and then think that they're relating to an entity in an appropriate fashion and it will lead them to disaster. Yeah. Because it would be better to have a naive view of an entity like like they're a human being and relate to them that way. Yeah. You'd be safer if you did that. If you took a superstitious view. Yeah. You would be safer if you did that. It'd be better if you did that. In some ways, you can say that that story that I told you about my wife's cousin yeah. who became a Jehovah's Witness. It's like she became superstitious because that's safer than the weird nihilistic, hedonistic, materialistic cult that she belonged to beforehand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which would also say something like the relationship's more important. I think I understand what you're trying to get at, but I think you have to go one step deeper and and change the orientation because. I think the debate around what is a god, what is an entity, what is a demon, yeah. it's been an ongoing one that's also extraordinarily tedious. Yeah. But yeah. It's, never been, it's never been resolved, has it? No. <laughs> it but, just goes on and on, and we try and accommodate our lived experience, and we fumble around, nevertheless, in postmodern categories. Yeah. But let me come back on that and flip it yeah. around, because I think there are also some problems with the perspective that you're putting forward as well which i think i haven't done it yet which i think mine <laughs> mine compensates for okay yeah so like you were saying the problem of seeing the entity in terms of a relationship mm. is that we might be lulled into something that's actually destructive some relationships are destructive some sorts mm. of relationships if you enter into them will lead to your destruction and i think when i think of a demon what what fundamentally i see that in terms of is a relationship that's going to undermine you and that's inherent in the relationship itself and we see this yeah a lot in people who practice goetic magic Mm -hmm. okay so you read the goetia and what's set out there is a certain sort of relationship you are supposed to assume with regard to these entities so these entities are beings that will mess you up if they get the chance. So mm. therefore you have to be very rigid 
very much in control of them, letting them know who's boss. Okay. Now, <laughs> you come across loads and loads of magicians who, you know, will make the case, well, that's disrespectful. These entities are actually old gods, and they deserve some veneration because that's their true nature. They're actually old gods that Christianity has cast out. Now, I would argue that shows the drawbacks of relating to these entities as if they're actual beings. They're old gods, and they need to be related to that as such. But what, for me, the Goetia is actually laying out is a sort of relationship that you have with these entities. Why Why would you go against that? You read the Goetia, it tells you what to do. These things will mess you up if you give them a chance. Why would you then assume that doesn't apply to you, that you can have some sort of special relationship with them because you know their true nature, you know what these entities are really? Well, you just hit the nail on the head. If they're just relationships, if it's about relationship, Mm. if I change my relationship with it, Mm. then it's different. Yes. So now we're in Alan Moore territory. It's there in his comic Promethea. If you relate to the Goishas, if they're demons, guess what they appear as? If you change your relationship with them, then it changes your interaction with them. They take on a different form, a different nature. And therefore, if you're nice to them, you invite them in, then they're nice to you and invite you in. And that's what I mean by inviting almost a psychological view. When you talk about relationships, we're in such a psychologized society now that, pe- that people think it's about that. But I know what you're getting at, but I think if we change the framework, and I'll, like it answers the question. So the nature of a god or a demon or a spirit or an entity. If you do a working with Ganesha, and I do a working with Ganesha, right? Is, it, is there one Ganesha who, who runs to you to answer your questions and then runs to me? So examples like this are often brought up, aren't they, mm. to demonstrate that the nature of a god or an entity is something other than a monad or something like that or a singular entity that lives in some dimension somewhere. But at the same time, though, when you interact with Ganesha, you're interacting, aren't you, with an intelligence that has an agency of its own, appears to have an agency of its own, yeah? So what does that mean? What it means is this, this is the point of view I want to get across, whether people agree with it or not doesn't really matter gods have exactly the same nature as human beings do there's no difference there's literally no difference apart from the fact that we're incarnate so the reason there's a physical monad that seems to be singular and limited by time and space is because we're participating in, in, in the human experience in the human body but our nature is exactly the same as the discarnate god or spirit or entity so fundamentally who and what you are is something that can be experienced as a multiplicity through time by individuals should they wish to interact with you in that way but nevertheless that's an expression of what our nature is in a more real sense than anything implied by this human form yeah so there's no so there's no difference yeah but you can have different sorts of relationship to that, can't you? Yes, but here's the thing. If I say to you, that's what the nature of a god is. Yeah. It's exactly the same as what the nature of a human being actually is. Yeah. Apart from one limiting factor. And then you can even find the, the analogical equivalence, can't you, for when you interact with a god or a demon or an entity, which is the momentary expression of its nature in that ritual setting. is like an incarnate form. Yeah. So you should take that appearance, that incarnate form, in that momentary experience, as if 
interacting with with a real entity that's singular knowing full well that that impoverished temporary incarnatory form and that ritual experience isn't the same as being embodied like a human being which is a more prolonged experience isn't it <laughs> a more prolonged incarnation but that it's but that its reality lies in a higher nature which is the same as what we've got and therefore from that perspective you're not going to relate to a demon as if it isn't a demon <laughs> if i say to you don't go and hang out with this guy because he's a bad person yeah who can't be trusted and will mislead you to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do and then he'll blackmail you yeah you don't bring up the question of what's the right relationship with him you just listen to my advice don't you or maybe you set you you keep it in the back of your mind and you go and interact with this person and then you're like yeah i think you're right when we bring in concerns ontological concerns i think we end up doing that same thing which is what postmodernism does it puts you in a it puts you on the back foot or puts you in a situation where no matter how sophisticated your thinking might be you're hamstrung by the fundamental illusion that postmodernism forces us to inhabit it takes us away from the immediacy of our own experience or our instinctual organic experience like you said every text starts doesn't it with a denigration of the idea of truth it has to start there because our natural inclination as human beings is not to concern ourselves with truth but with the immediacy of our own experience and honoring the details of that experience yeah is all that makes sense yeah yeah but then i'm wondering about if we realize the nature of a god as being identical with our own nature only at the top yeah because i'd say the same thing about me and you i'd say the same thing about any human being we have the same nature ultimately at the top yeah but when i'm interacting with you now if you've pulled a knife on me to steal my trainers i'm not thinking how we're all one no <laughs> so then presumably what you're saying is what constitutes a demon is something different from un or something that we have in common at the bottom maybe i don't know well, i think you can trust the traditions and that's the other thing it just comes to a description of the tradition what does it say in some of these traditions they used to be criminals who were alive and then they died and then people formed a magical cult around them and they've continued and developed in a certain direction and you can interact with them they're not you wouldn't say that they're human in the sense that they're incarnated but every ritual experience across time is a momentary incarnation and that's what they seek yeah. that's what they seek is that momentary incarnation so if you think about the work that you've done whenever you've evoked a demon the demon is in the triangle the first thing it wants to do is convince you that it's not in the triangle <laughs> yeah so that you leave the protective circle yeah already manifesting in terms of its own nature right yeah yeah deceitful wants to lead you in the wrong direction wants to fool you first step internally emotionally there'll be states that arise commensurate with the nature of that demon then there's a whole plethora of phenomena that go along with it maybe you hear a cackling evil voice maybe you feel hands closing around your throat maybe your pet cat sets on fire maybe you see its form in smoke that you've provided to try and give it more substance so that it can incarnate but it incarnates in a number of ways doesn't it yeah commensurate with its nature and it has an intelligence and a direction that it's moving in but i still can't help seeing that in terms of relationship 
And I think you can do, is it yeah. not? And like you were saying, like you were saying, we yeah. we can trust the traditions to tell us what demons are. Mm. But in the case of the <laughs> yeah. but in the case of the Goetia, it is true yeah. that they're old gods that were suppressed by, by Christianity. That is the case. Right. But here's something interesting <laughs> about that. Was it appropriate that they were suppressed, mm. exiled? By Christianity. For me, what is there is a diff is a different relationship. It's a different relationship. That relationship is what constitutes a demon. It, yes, it used to be a god. Yes, it has been suppressed by Christianity. But so what? So what? This is something that wants to come back. This is something that wants to assume control that it's lost. This is something that wants to have power over you. It doesn't matter if it used to be Astarte or Ishtar or Baal or whatever. It's that relationship that adheres now that determines what its nature is. And when we go into the goetic ritual and the spirit's in the triangle and it's trying to lure us out the circle, that to me is like the example you gave earlier when you say, don't go and spend time with this guy, he's a crook. <laughs> and I go along, I check him out, and it's in the nature of the vibe that I get from him. That tells me that what you're saying is true. It's the relationship, the quality of the relationship that I have with this person that affirms that for me, and then I back off. Yeah, I think that's normal human instinct for a relationship in terms of the experience that you're having. I think that's a fundamental necessity when it comes to magic. And that's, that seems to be the first thing that goes out the window when people do practice magic. They think if they experience something magical, then it must be good. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's going to draw you in, isn't yeah. it? It's incredible. Who would have thought? Who would have thought you could have experiences like this? Of course, you're going to get excited, and you're going to want more. Yeah, the nature of the nameless god, where I talked about the at this conference, how you wouldn't, someone wouldn't consciously say that they worship this nameless god, and they do that in a culturally expressed, explicit manner. But at the same time, they did do a ritual for that nameless god. Yeah. And if you pushed them, maybe they might actually say, you know what, I don't actually believe in the nameless God. We did the ritual and everything, yeah. and I'm here at this conference talking about all of this stuff. Yeah. But it's a bit like the demon appearing in the triangle. The first move that it makes is to make you think that it's not in the triangle. Yeah. Why would it do that? Why would I, if I'm relating to you, lie about my malevolent intentions such that I try and get you to come in a certain direction, and by the time you realise what my nature is and what I've done to you, something's been achieved. Yeah. Yeah, what is it I'm trying to achieve? What is it that I'm trying to do? And you can see that whatever it is that I'm trying to do, there are certain rules to the game. You have to say yes to it. Yeah. You have to come along with me, don't you? And I can do it by lying, but the lie is precisely that I don't have the nature that I'm going to reveal to you later on. <laughs> Do you think that's interesting? That's there? Yeah. This say, this subterfuge, like a lie that I don't really exist. Whatever it is you think about me and what my nature might be, it's good. <sighs> it's absolutely good, and there's definitely nothing bad going on. Do you think that's interesting? Yeah. Here's a, another quote from that article, right? And once a member, I saw the full rituals and the summoning of the Watchers and I was shaken by a very real demonic presence. I'm wondering, by the way, there, if this person has been influenced by certain members of the Orthodox community who have a podcast where they talk about the Watchers or the Nephilim from the Book of Enoch mm. and talk about them as demons and so on. But they actually mean something else, very different from that. But 
I think that that's what that's the language she's using there, where that comes from. But anyway, I was shaken by a very real demonic presence. It was as if I were surrounded by dragons, large lizard-like beings that were not kindly disposed. I wanted to know what they were calling and why, and what the relationship was, and they seemed a little dumbfounded. So she's talking about her fellow occultists here. So she, so she wanted to know what her fellow occultists were calling and why, and what the relationship was. <laughs> and she was a little dumbfounded when she saw what transpired. She says, that's when I realised they didn't really believe what they were doing. It was spiritual LARPing, yeah. live action roleplay. It was like babies playing with matches. They had embraced something vaguely therapeutic that gave them a sense of identity and indulged their passions and summoned demons. She's not wrong, is she? (laughs) No, she's correct. (laughs) How many times, Duncan, have we seen people do rituals, sometimes involving demons, Mm. where it transpires further down the line? They clearly do not believe in what it is that they've summoned. Many times, I would say. And that, and going back to that question as well, the people at the conference, do they believe in the nameless God? Do they worship the nameless God? They might say no, but they may still have a relationship to it. (laughs) Yeah, You can have a relationship to things, you know, that you're not aware of, but but you still have a relationship. So these are cultists that do these rituals and work with these entities, but then if you pay attention, it's obvious from their actions, don't really take the entities seriously. We could say that's because they lack an embedded cultural framework of how to orient themselves within the world. Like the protagonist from my story, who became a Jehovah's Witness, she lacked the values and the direction given to her an institution that you can rely on to ameliorate your worst tendencies. But you can see, can't you, that it's not that there's just a lack of this framework, it's that there's a framework that's present that actually encourages dangerous behaviour. So if you think that the right way of relating to the world is to exalt the victim and liberate those subject to the repression from a corrupt and tyrannical western civilization then you're encouraged aren't you to work with demons as if they're not actually demons they're oppressed spiritual entities and i think what's happening is a lot of people are recognizing that the values that we have are encouraging us in a self-destructive direction and that's why they're flocking to these christian churches that don't present the same values as the rest of the culture Instead, they're concerned with the theological reality of God. Maybe it's worth bringing in, at this point, what the God wants for us. Because, as you were saying, if we're encouraged that mindset to see goetic demons as oppressed gods, then that might encourage us to dedicate ourselves to them, worship them, give them offerings, build them up, boost them up. Is that really a god? Is that what a god <laughs> wants? There's also a question here of what the divine wants for us, I think. And that's something that comes into play in true initiation. We talked. I've talked a lot about relationships. Uh, we relate to entities, but they also have a relationship to us. And 
my sense is that what the divine wants for us is setting us free, liberating us, in contrast to a demon which will want to be the object of our desire. It will want to be at the heart of everything we do, receiving our energy, receiving our attention, and it will it will swallow all of that. My experience is that demons are hungry for that sort of stuff, but in a relationship to a god, no, it's it doesn't want to be the source of our desire. It liberates us. I think of the difference between what we can think of as divine and something else in absolute terms through what it's asking for in terms of sacrifice right of course you can have a trade if you're merely trading with someone or with something then that's just business isn't it yeah so now you know the nature of the entity you're working with if you're doing a trade if i'm going to trade my incarnatory experience temporarily for some kind of spiritual favor that's a trade isn't it so now you know the nature of those entities that do that kind of thing and the traditions that support that kind of thing. But if what I need to do is, and this is implicit in trade, right, but obviously you can have more explicit versions of this. If it's that I have to sacrifice someone or something for the entity in question, then we're not dealing with the highest of the high or the divine, so to speak. The divine only wants one thing. It wants us to sacrifice ourselves to ourself. Yeah. Not to the God in question, to ourself. Yeah. To sacrifice ourselves to ourselves. So what does that mean? It means that there are certain expressions of the divine that are self-transcending. And you relate to them in such a way that it asks you to go beyond yourself. And you have to say yes to that. Yeah. And it will, more than anything, would love to raise you up yeah. beyond where you are. If you sacrifice yourself to yourself, then you realise yourself as a gift. There's not a giving up, a giving away in the sense that there is with the other there sort a, of transaction that you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, I mean, and there is a death, though. There is yeah, a death. Yeah. So when we go beyond the idea that we have of ourselves, if you think about the most profound conception you have of yourself right now, your biggest, loftiest ideas, your most profound experiences, if you think of that as a horizon, which by definition you can't see over, mm. right, would you be willing to give up everything below that horizon for what's over it. Yes. <laughs> but you will die to that identity to discover one that's larger, that's beyond it. And the only way you do that is through faith, because you don't know what it is. You do know what the call is and what the longing is, and you do know that there's an, an intelligence and an intimacy and a loving action that would do anything for you to, if you say yes to that, to help you along with that. It's miraculous. And it turns out it was your nature all along. So here's a wonderful inheritance. Would you like it? Your conception of yourself that's you saying no to a, to this larger inheritance, isn't it? Yeah. It doesn't matter how God turns up, what they look like. They could look like Lucifer, red skin and horns and a trident. <laughs> but what's the fruit of the relationship? What does it want? Yeah. What does it want yeah. from you? Yeah. Does it want a transaction? Does it want a trade? Does it want a sacrifice? Is it just a small sacrifice? Is it just a small immoral act that it wants you to do a little lie yeah. something like that where's that leading to what's its nature and this is that conception of idolatry it's the difference between the two to idolize something is to sacrifice yourself or others or something for that idol right which is not the same thing as sacrificing yourself to yourself therefore god in his highest conception doesn't have an image 
so to speak, other than that self-transcending image of the human being, which is why, I'm again too theological, but this is why you have the mystery of the divine human being. The human being is the image of God, right, that's going beyond itself. Back to orthodoxy. Uh-huh. Unlike Western Christianity, orthodoxy, Eastern orthodoxy, retains this idea of deification, becoming as God. Right? It was originally there in Christianity at the beginning, and eventually that disappeared in Western Christianity, in Roman Catholicism and so on, and became a very foreign idea. But in Eastern Orthodoxy, they retain the idea. So they still have that idea that you can become deified. Up until the 4th century, that was the aim of Christianity, was to become deified. And it has the characteristics of how people at that time related to all Mediterranean gods. They're people who become deified. And that's how Christ was, someone who became deified. Yeah. Someone who became deified. And that was the point of the tradition. And the little that I know about this, there, there were practices in order to realise that. Hesychasm and... Yeah, so that still exists in orthodoxy. Yeah. However, there is still this artificial ceiling in orthodoxy where the aim is to become deified as a human being, but you will never become as deified as Christ is. There's an artificial ceiling there that never used to exist there. So although it's still there in the tradition, deification, it's not the deification of the early Christians. It's not quite the same. But a lot of people are drawn for that reason. A lot of people who are drawn to occultism for that reason end up moving into orthodoxy because they see this mysticism that still exists and these practices. And yet it's also a very old tradition, isn't it? With an orientation and values that won't lead you in the direction that our culture is going in. Mm. Actively cheering on your destruction. But I also can't help noticing that there's a bizarre mirror-like relationship between contemporary occultism and these growing churches, orthodox churches or other forms of Christianity where these Christians are willing to admit the reality of demons because right. the occultists will do rituals won't they to work with demons and they do mm. it with a kind of naivety in these generalised broad brushes that broad strokes that I'm making now because <laughs> not everyone's like this but the these some of these orthodox Christians also have a naive view of demons there seems to be this false dichotomy either demons are superstition or demons are real and the movement at the moment seems to be seems to involve people realizing that, oh demons are actually real and i was enthralled by demons but now that i've joined the church i know what they are and i know the right direction to move in but the understanding that these christians have of esotericism of occultism seems to be as bad <laughs> and as naive and as superstitious as the view held by many occultists do you not think we come to a fundamental dilemma here? One of the things that comes to mind is Connor Habib and his podcast Against Everyone with Connor Habib. And recently he's done a series of podcasts being critical of the practice mm. of magic. And he's done yeah. quite a few of these and some of them are quite interesting. And it seems to be something that's in the air now. We're talking about it here today. Yeah. And I agree with a lot of what he says, but the stumbling block I have is that I wouldn't be able to appreciate the value in what he says. I wouldn't be able to understand what he says if I hadn't practiced magic. Yeah. Occultism 
is the vehicle that has brought me <laughs> to the understanding that a lot of its expressions are not helpful. Yeah. If we discourage people from mm. the practice of magic, and I'm not suggesting that we encourage them either, but if we discourage people from that, then what do we base our arguments upon? It's just something from authority. Now, th this is the issue that I have with some of the podcasts that Conor Habib has put out. I agree with him 100%, but for people who haven't had the experience of magic, all that they can do is take what he's saying on authority. And then where do they go with that? But that's true in many situations, isn't it? People outsource mm. their trust to figures yeah. who have had the experience on your behalf, which is an understandable position to be in. Yeah. Again, I'm reminded of the story that I told about my wife's cousin. We need to outsource our trust to institutions to a certain extent. Otherwise, society is unworkable. So what are the kinds of things then that Connor says in order to dissuade us from practicing magic and the reasons why you might not want to? Pretty much the stuff that we've talked about, the harm that it can lead mm. to, surrender of consent and willpower, the contraction that it can lead to as well, just wanting mm. to realise the same desires over and over again and then as a consequence imprisoning us in those and the limitations that it can place on opening us up to a more spiritually inclined view. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. I think yeah. I think contemporary occultism, like for the last century, can easily lead you to think that's the way magic has, has always been mm. in all cultures. When it hasn't, it's always been accommodated within the dominant religious form of a given culture, hasn't it? So I'm thinking about the Abramelian ritual as one example. You spend about a year and a half praying and fasting to God to ask him to send you an angel. This is the key component of the whole working, right, before you get to any of the technical stuff. Just prayer, isn't it? Sincere, Just heartfelt prayer. prayer. Sincere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How many people do we know who are interested in magic who have a sincere, heartfelt relationship with the idea of the Christian God or the Jewish God? Or any god. Yeah. And praying, not invoking, not commanding, praying. Who knows how to pray? How many people know how to pray? And that's telling when it gets to the description of how you interact with the demons when it gets to that part of the ritual. You, re you relate to them as a good Christian would, or a good Jew would, with the appropriate level of respect, but also recognising what they are. Yeah. Without indulging any of the passions about being angry or prideful and it runs all the way through to the intentions you have for doing a working with a demon to get the magical results that you wish for yeah. who does it help what's the good religious moral outcome from your magical actions yeah in terms of the Abramelian work in according to the text Abraham who's the guy who passes on these teachings he wrote them down for his second born his first born son gets the Kabbalah so yeah. <laughs> the Abramelian was like your second prize. It's just a way of giving the second-born son away and making a living, supposedly. And as you were saying, you treat the demons as you would if you were a good Jew. You don't let them. You don't let them into the oratory. They're out on the veranda in the river sand. They can't step into the oratory because it's consecrated by a year and a half's worth of consecration practice and prayer. Funnily enough, demons don't like being near the virtuous. 
But coming back to the weird relationship between occultism and this Christian revival, if we can call it, that's happening at the moment, and the relationship between the two, because ju just as this Christian relationship with God, recognising the incarnation of God as a human being, honouring the teachings of this 2,000-year-old tradition, just as that's foreign to occultism, to occultists, in fact, they're moving in opposite directions, aren't they? The understanding of the nature of magic and demons is missing from Christian practice in a way that it never was in the past. Right, yeah. So if we have postmodern occultists who have those values, whether they consciously acknowledge this or not, right, they seem to be missing the God aspect. The Christians who have the God aspect seem to be missing the magical or the demonic part. Yeah. And although they might be saying they recognize the reality <coughs> of demons, Christian magic has always been a part of the tradition. The earliest images of Christ... I don't know if you've seen them, is of basically a Mediterranean god, but it's a guy with a magical wand. Right. Practicing magic. <laughs> the rituals that they perform in the church, transubstantiation, this is an old magical sacrifice ritual. When you sacrifice an animal to a deity, the animal is offered up to the deity, and then people share in the meat from the sacrifice as a way of participating in the body of the deity. So it's just a repetition of that same structure. Yeah. You're eating the body of a god when you go there. What about this this idea that the pagan gods are actually demons? Right? And that there's actually only one true god if you're worshipping one of these other gods. Actually you're worshipping a demon even though you don't think you are. What about the Gnostic ac accusation that Jehovah's a demiurge? <laughs> the biggest of demons. The idea that, as he states in the Bible, Yahweh is the only God to be worshipped. You're not supposed to worship the other ones. <laughs> There's an ambiguity there, isn't there? There's an ambiguity with idolatry, with sacrifice. What if you're secretly worshipping a demon and you don't know it? That ambiguity is still there, isn't it? Satanic panic. The occultists, who seem to go out of their way to give the impression of the worst things you can imagine happening to children are going on. Okay, but then you look at the church. The things that have happened to children in religious institutions, the Catholic Church, what happened in Ireland in the care homes, what's happening in the Russian Orthodox Church, the Serbian Church, has it been infiltrated by demons? What if the whole institution is really a demonic hierarchy incarnated on earth <sighs> to lead human beings in the wrong direction? So there's this weird structural similarity between the two, and I think that there's something beyond both of them that's that honours what the truth is. I don't know if this is the intention that you're perhaps heading in, but what comes to my mind is maybe a somewhat fanciful idea of whether there needs to be more magic in Christianity. Because maybe not so much in the Orthodox churches, but I'm all, always totally gobsmacked by the mental gymnastics Christians of a certain persuasion seem to do in order to arrive at some sort of idea of Christianity, of Christ representing family values and financial independence and supply-side economics. Is that perhaps to some degree due to a neglect of the demonic? I don't know. If people practice magic and are more open to the demonic and have had perhaps to some degree some sort of contact with that dimension of experience does that present us with something useful armus shows us what good and evil are perhaps 
Yeah, I would say that there does need to be a mature understanding, hard won through experience, that counters superstition. Because that false dichotomy, the demons are real or it's all superstition, denies the truth that demons are real. There are such things as demons in the way we've talked about. But superstition is also real at the same time. And again, I've seen both in action in both camps. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say a bit more about superstition? You know, how you've how that manifests. Yeah. Okay, I'll give you I'll give you an example, a news story that I saw. It was about a four year old girl that had been abused and killed by her parents. Mm-hmm. And the way it was presented in the media was that it was just one of those unfortunate cases of child abuse. But it turned out that the family were from a tradition, an African tradition, I can't remember which country they came from, which led them to believe that their four-year-old daughter was possessed by a demon. So they tortured her to try and get the demon out of her, and they ended up killing her. Now, I've often wondered what occultists who celebrate all the wonderful traditions around the world that are magical in nature, as if by dint of the fact that they're magical and non-Western then they must be wonderful and celebrated. I often wonder what they make of cases like that. And demons are real, but that's clearly superstition, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? Or if it's not superstition, is that the right way? Is that how you deal with a demon? It brings up some thorny questions, doesn't it? And I I couldn't... I can't conceive of a mature conversation happening around that. Yeah. What that strikes me as presenting is, in that case... There's a prioritising of the demon rather than the child. It's almost as if it's more important to get rid of the demon than it is to care for the welfare of the child. But what I suspect there is, and that's my understanding ignorance. of yeah, that's my understanding of what you're meaning by superstition. Yeah. What would the Christians say, who say demons are real? Because I think that they, I think that they were Christian. What would the Christians say? Was there a demon in that child? What would the occultists say? Yeah. There isn't a demon in that child. There is ignorance, there's superstition, and there is understanding the nature of what it is that you're interacting with when it comes to the spiritual domain or the magical domain. The first question isn't, was that child really possessed by a demon? No. The first question would be, how can we care for this child? How can we ensure the best for this person? Not only the person, not only the child, but the parents. What we're talking about here is superstition, isn't it? And what is at the heart of that? And maybe superstition is, I don't know, I'm just throwing this out there, the deprioritization of the human. I don't know. Like you said, your first question is, how can we care for this child? How can we care for the parents? What's for the best for them? Rather than, how can we kill this demon? Now, I've had experiences around exorcism and I won't go into too much detail but someone who was clearly possessed by a demon under the influence of a demon and I've known more than one person like that when it came to the possibility of that person being free of the demon the reality of the situation was that it required the person in question to say no to the demon mm. but this po- this person chose instead to say yes despite the obvious unconscious suffering that the relationship brought to that person yeah and i'll say something similar because i've had experience down the years of people getting in touch with me who have been troubled by what they saw as demonic activity 
this just to say this has not been in the context of a counselling or therapeutic relationship this is people sending me emails and I've had correspondence with them and I encountered the same thing Mm. that quite surprising to me when it came to talking about actually taking action in order to change the situation in order to banish or do something practical about getting rid of this sort of demonic encumbrance people didn't seem to want to let go of it They would make excuses for it. They would talk about the benefits, such as they were in this relationship. It really was instructive to me that often in these sorts of relationships, the demon has really set itself up as the object of this person's desire. And they don't want to let go of it. Just to say as well, maybe they're in a kind of psychological paradigm. There may be some parallels there with the psychology of addiction. In terms of Magia, we would say the situ- to be in that situation has required a number of false initiations. There is a fundamental confusion in terms of intentions and being able to tell what's good and what's bad. Yeah. Which is probably beyond the scope of this conversation to go into now. But it makes sense of why people would intentionally act in a malevolent way or in a self-destructive manner even when presented with the facts, which seems very hard for us to understand. But superstition would say to you, wouldn't it, that you can force a demon out of someone. Yeah. You can expel the demons on behalf of others. That would be superstition versus the reality of the situation. If the person doesn't say no to something they've been saying yes to for a long time, then there's no changing it. There's no changing what's going on. And again, if that's true. Again, maybe that deprioritizing of the human factor that we have to say no. We, it is, in a sense, a decision, a human decision, yes or no. If we know this about the nature of false transmission and what we might call what's demonic, ultimately expressed as the nameless God, it's not possible, is it, for a child to say yes or no? So that speaks to the depth of the possibility of demonic possession. But do you know what would benefit from the superstition that you can expel demons on other people's behalf? What? Imagine being a parent who has to torture their own child. Right. Because some spiritual authority has told you that's what you need to do because she's obviously possessed. Would you say that was traumatic? Who's traumatised? Parents, obviously the child, everyone involved. But it's for their own good, isn't it? One thing you can't do is rely on the outward expression of spiritual virtue to identify what's good and what's evil. We talked about the church, people dressed up in robes who pronounce that they believe in Christ and that they're good Christians. That's no guarantee, is it, that they won't be the worst amongst us? No. For what they might do. The same is true with occultism. You can't go off outward expressions, how people appear, to understand what their relationship is with the divine in an intimate sense, right? And it comes back to that idea that good and evil is found in the heart of each individual and it comes down to a sovereign choice for each individual which is why you can't expel a demon on someone else's behalf they have to say yes or no to it yeah you can maybe guide them hopefully to that point where they can start to say no yeah so superstition would end up looking like this idea that you can make choices on behalf of other people right yeah which ends up looking like a satanic panic that's an example of superstition isn't it because what's a satanic panic? It's the idea, isn't it, that you can expel the demons. And that's the thing that I see these occultists doing who move from a tradition that might involve trauma-based initiation 
a false lineage, a false teaching that leads in the wrong direction. When they migrate from that into these churches, they're then leaning into this idea, aren't they, that they can expel the demons. I don't mean just for themselves individually, because obviously that's the that's what it is that the divine would want for us. But expelling the demons on behalf of others. Yeah. Hopefully there's a more positive outcome because for these Orthodox churches there is the possibility of an initiation there, isn't there? And hopefully that will offer something to to people who do take that route. But like you were saying, there is perhaps also a shadow side to that, which is this more superstitious approach. What I see happening in Europe is something like the heresy of the free spirit that happened around the 12th and 13th centuries, where all of these different religious and prophetic movements swept through Europe, and there was a religious fervour. I think we're going to see something similar, and not just Christian movements, but really bizarre movements. We've already seen some very bizarre cults, although we don't recognise them as such, Hmm. because we see them as secular. And I can't help seeing that there will be amongst this religiosity a plethora of examples of people either explicitly or implicitly attempting to expel the demons and you would hope that they don't identify you as someone (laughs) possessed by a demon yeah so this trend of people moving into orthodoxy what's your sense is it overall something positive or do you think that superstitious element is going to predominate. I think the cultural moment that we find ourselves in is forcing us to give birth to something new. Mm. It's calling us to step into a different kind of maturity. Now, of course, we can fail to do that, but it does require us to at least aim at that maturity for it to be possible. Part of that maturity is recognising what I call the idea of the empty institute we started this discussion didn't we by reminiscing about when we started the baptist head project back in 2005 2006 and how we followed this thread and these practices exercising self-sufficiency honesty with oneself the ability to recognize where we're deluded but the willingness to go beyond it to sacrifice ourselves to ourselves. right now without that choice and without that self-determination and that honesty it wouldn't have been possible for initiation to take place in the way that it did now I think it's essential that just as we found each other people who follow this thread can find each other and the more people do that the better it is and the more conscious the understanding of these values and the more that's expressed explicitly then that's all for the better you might even say that it's essential so you need an institute in that way But you have to recognise that simply because you don the robes of an Orthodox church, that doesn't mean that you're a good Christian. Just as if you put on the black garb of the occultist, head to toe in black, what is that about? Or even if you say the Magia prayer facing west every morning. Yes, we can't rely on appearances. Instead, we have to turn inward and contend with the good and the evil that we find in ourselves and the only thing that we are in control of which is our conscious ability to say yes or no to appearances to indulge appearances or to something else that we carry around inside ourselves that says that there's something more 
there's something beyond these appearances and we can say yes to following that thread but obviously we can't do that for anyone else yeah so as long as these people that are moving from occultism to orthodoxy can do it in a way where that orthodoxy is informed by some of these principles that I'm talking about, then I think it will be a good thing. Yeah, given the alternative maybe, which is to take a load of LSD and just run into the outback as far as you can go. Is that the end? Yeah. Was that what you were waiting to do? That's what you were waiting to do. Nice. Yes, okay. (laughs) 